the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Heaven is high, hell is low. Today we say hi and hello. I didn't mean it as a joke, it's a true thing. Heaven is real, hell is real. Jesus died so that as many as would choose him would go to heaven. And only those tragically who reject him would go to hell. But Jesus says here that this is the reality. And he says, don't be worried about those who can destroy only body. Worry about those, worry about instead the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Today, Pastor Gary will share that not a lot of people believe that both heaven and hell are realities. Some may say they are just places to get people to do good things. But the Bible says that each are both very real, and everyone is going to one or the other. So how do we decide where we go? It's your choice. Jesus died a gruesome death on the cross for the sins of everyone who lived, was living, and had yet to live. He died so that we could be made clean from our sins, so that we could be brought into heaven. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew chapter 10 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Because he doesn't want any to go to hell. But those who end up going to hell go there because they, for, they refuse to accept the free gift of God's love and forgiveness and eternal reward in heaven, and thereby then they join the devil and the fallen angels, which are the demons, that was the reason hell was prepared in the first place. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell. Now, uh, sadly, there was a survey done in 2010 of over 5,000 teenagers in the United States between the ages of 14 and 18, just a couple of years ago. Over 5,000 teenagers surveyed between the ages of 14 and 18. 48% do not believe in heaven or hell as real places. 48%, according to this one survey, of American teenagers between the age of 14 and 18 do not believe that heaven and hell are real places. Imagine... There's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, only sky above us. Imagine all the people. Anyway, there's a song about that, right? John Lennon wrote that because that's a tragic thought. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try it. There's no hell below us, above us, only sky. How sad is that? That Imagine that there's no heaven. There is a heaven, and Jesus died that we might go there. Uh, Speaking about heaven and hell, 
my wife was subbing at school yesterday and came home, and one of the kids in the class said, hey, I remember when your husband, he goes to Cornerstone, I remember when your husband told this joke about uh, hi and hello. It wasn't a joke, but it comes to mind as I'm looking at this, because heaven and hell are real places. And the Puritans, it wasn't a joke, but he's in third grade, he thought I was kidding. Because I kid a lot, and people can't tell. Are you kidding? I'm, I, I'm, I was serious, and so let me say it again and, and let everybody know this is serious. This is true. But you get extra information at Cornerstone for no charge. But here's, here's what it is. The Puritans, the Puritans, in the days of the early colonies, they had a saying to reinforce the reality of heaven and hell. And the way that they would greet each other, one person would say to the other, heaven is high, and the other person in response would say, hell is low. So you'd see somebody go, heaven is high, hell is low, heaven is high, hell is low. We've abridged it today to say hi and hello. That's where those words came from. The Puritans used to have those words of greeting to remind each other heaven is a reality and so is hell. Heaven is high, hell is low. Today we say hi and hello. I didn't mean it as a joke. It's a true thing. (laughs) Heaven is real. Hell is real. Jesus died so that as many as would choose him would go to heaven. And only those tragically who reject him would go to hell. But Jesus says here that this is the reality. And he says, don't be worried about those who can destroy only body. Worry about those. Worry about instead the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he, he talks here about not being afraid. Why? Because in verse 29 and in verse 31, he says, you're much more valuable than a sparrow. And he says, you know, when, when you consider the sparrows... He says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall into the ground apart from the will of your father. I mean, pretty cheap bird, right? But he says, but God loves every sparrow, and he knows when every sparrow falls, and not a single sparrow escapes his care. And that's why at the end in verse 31, he says, so don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. And, and he also reinforces how much he cares for us, because he says in verse 30 that, that he even cares for us down to the very numbers of uh, hair on our head, which is easy counting for some of you. But, uh, but nevertheless, it's a statement about how much God cares for us down to the very numbers of hair on our head. And then he remarks here in verse 32 about don't be ashamed. And this is strong language. He says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. We reject Christ, we will be rejected. We acknowledge Christ, we will be acknowledged before the Father. It's as simple as it gets. Now, starting at verse 34, down through verse 37, he's going to tell us another thing to expect as followers of Christ, and that is to be prepared for some family conflict. How many of you can relate? I don't need a show of hands. I'm just because some of your family might be here. Uh, But it's a true statement. Now, let's look at what he says, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 34, he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Well, that sounds depressing, but notice the context. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's he's saying to us this third point that you should be prepared for some 
family conflict. If, if you're a believer and the rest of your family is not, boy, it makes for some wild reunions. If you've ever spent holidays with people who are not believers and you are, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it, it is not only extended family when you, when you have like holidays or, or you have family reunions and, you know, you got people who aren't Christians and you are, and, uh, but it can be even more excruciating when it's down to just your family unit. There's a husband who's a believer and his wife is not. There's a wife who's a believer and her husband is not. It will cause some measure of conflict. It just will. Because as a Christian, see, you are going to be living your life according to a different manual. It's this right here. And how you conduct yourself and how you interact with people and how you manage money and how you give money and, oh, should the kids go to church and, and all this kind of decision-making about even how to raise children, all of this is going to be very different from the way that a Christian might think and the way someone who doesn't know Christ might think. And now you've got that conflict in your marriage, and, and there will be like a sword in that relationship, not peace. Because, again, when you stand for Christ and you're living your life according to a set of standards that, that are expressed in God's Word... And somebody else in your family doesn't agree with it, like it. They might tolerate it, or worse, they might be antagonistic towards it. You're going to have some measure of conflict. So that's why it's important. Look, if you are single and thinking about being married, and you're a Christian, make sure you marry and start dating before a, a, a person who is a Christian, because if people get into a marriage where one's a believer and one is not, there is conflict. There just will be. And every marriage has conflict. You don't need more than the norm. All right? And everybody who just chuckled is married. And they, they know what that is about. Now, as Christians, we don't really fight, right? We have intense fellowship. But, but it happens. All right, because you're two people in general, but you get two completely different worldviews in the same home under the same roof, and there will be a measure of conflict. Now, some of you have gotten married, and after the fact you came to know Christ, or you got married and didn't know that you shouldn't have married a non-believer, and now you're in a marriage where there's a non-believer. What, what, is, what is God's will for you? Stay married. Unless the, the non-believer leaves, Paul writes about in his letter to the Corinthians, then you're free. That isn't a statement to encourage that at all, but it is simply to say this, that whether you knew it and now, or not, and now you do, uh, you have to maintain a home that is going to be naturally somewhat divided, and that's what Jesus says. There's going to be some division in it. Now, you see it not only in marriages, but you see it even when kids get saved and the parents aren't. And then there's a whole different dynamic there, too. We have some of that going on. We have kids that get saved in our youth ministry. They go home to a family that don't, don't share the same beliefs in Jesus. And uh, sometimes parents just kind of tolerate it. Well, at least, my, at least it's turned my kid you know, away from drugs and drinking and carousing, and so you know, we'll embrace it. Uh, or they might be antagonistic towards their kid. We had a, a young lady here who was saved about two years ago in our high school ministry, got saved here at Cornerstone. She was a Muslim. She was brought by a girlfriend who attended Cornerstone here, radically got saved, went home to her Muslim parents, and they were obviously outraged 
and she was told, you can't go back to that church. She pleaded with them. She came and actually uh, came to church, unbeknownst to her parents, was telling me this story after service one day, and she said, what should I do? I said, well, you, you need to go home and you need to obey your parents. I said, you know, I wish that they would allow you to come, but until they change their minds, God will honor you for honoring your parents, and until you're of age where you're an adult, and then you can go to church on your own. But as long as you're under your parents' household, it's not going to be comfortable. They don't share your beliefs, but you're going to have to honor them, and you might be able to win them by honoring them as unto the Lord. Now, to the best of my knowledge, that hasn't happened, but here yet, we can keep praying for them, but here's what did happen. She, um, there was a, an opportunity to work in our cafe. We have a mixture of some who are volunteers and some who are paid to work in our cafe. And uh, she said to her parents, uh, there's a job opening at Cornerstone. And um, can, I, can I apply for the job and work in the cafe? They said, all right, you, you can uh, apply for the job and work in the cafe. And so she came to me, she said, my parents don't want me to come to church, but they said if I work in the cafe, they'll let me come to church. I said, you're hired. And so she was able to come willingly. Her parents were okay with that. As long as you're making money going to that place, you can go. And so she was still able to stay in fellowship and uh, watch the service from the cafe and uh, have a job and get paid for knowing Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And, uh, and so, yeah, praise the Lord. So she's, she's off at college right now and uh, came home this past Easter, I found out, and was here for our Easter service with the understanding that she had to work in her cafe. She worked in our cafe and was here for Easter. So, but the point is that, that there will be conflicts. So when Jesus says here, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, I mean, he's, he's, he's not uh, saying something that is cruel. He's just saying something that is a, a truism. He's saying, look, when, when there is a household and some love Jesus and some don't know him or don't love him, there's going to be conflict. And he says, you, you can just come to expect some of that. So, therefore, if you are a part of a family where everybody in your family are believers, you better thank God every day. Because that makes for wonderful family reunions. And that makes for wonderful Christmases and wonderful Easter's. Because when you can share about Jesus with people who are like-minded and they have the same heart about Jesus as you do, it makes for rich and wonderful family gatherings. And don't take that for granted. Because I can tell you too many families that don't have what you have. And it is hard for them. And it is sometimes miserable for them. And they make the best of it. And they trust the Lord. And they are trying to be light and salt in their family and in their household. There are dear, precious wives who are praying for their husbands, and they are just being faithful and loving Jesus. And there, there are men who are believers, and their wives aren't, and they are praying for their wives, and they are just being faithful to Jesus. And it is, it is hard for them. So if you have a family, uh, as, as Terry and I do, who, uh, praise God, you know, know the Lord, uh, then it makes for great family gatherings. Uh, but when that is lacking, those of you who have that lacking, you know how difficult it can be, and you know how true Jesus' words are here. And, and he summarizes all this by, again, saying that there in verse 37, that anyone who loves his father, now it's the Greek word phileo, it's not agape, if you have phileo, the brotherly love, if anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And that is sometimes a, um, a statement that you might read and, and think, wow, I mean, that's, that's some serious love, and it is. Uh, I love my wife and my kids. I love Jesus more because I will be better loving them if I love Jesus more, and they are too. My kids love Jesus more than me. My wife loves Jesus more than me. And because we love Jesus most, we are able to love each other best. That's the way it works. You love Jesus most, you can love others best. But if you don't love Jesus most, he says, you're not worthy of me. We have to put him as the supreme relationship. As much as you should love your spouse and love your kids, Jesus has to be supreme in your heart. He has to be loved above anyone and anything else. And then verse 38, here's the the fourth point he's going to make here as he dispatches us as disciples. He's going to say this, point number four, take up your cross and follow him. In verse 38, he says, And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, now notice this, this is the great paradox of Christianity. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's very counterintuitive, isn't it? But this is what Jesus is saying to us. Whoever finds his life, it is the Greek word suke, more literally soul. Whoever finds his soul will lose it. Whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. If you try to hold on to your life, you will be miserable. If you release it to Jesus, you'll get it. You know, people have this expression about, I think I'm losing it. I think I'm losing it. I'm losing it. I think I'm losing it. You should. Then you're going to get it. If you finally will lose it and then get Jesus, you'll really have life. If you're losing it, it's okay. Because in losing yourself, you can really then find life in Jesus. If we try to find life in ourselves, we will be miserably disappointed. But if we lose our life in Jesus, if he becomes our everything, if we get consumed with Jesus, you will find life like you've never experienced it before. Can anybody testify to this? Amen? And so it is the, it is the great paradox of losing your life, and then you'll find it. If you try to find your life, you will lose it. Everybody goes around, you know, years ago in my day growing up, it was like, i got to find myself, i got to find myself. Nobody ever found themselves. They were drowning in their own self-pity. And it's only going to be realized the fullness of life when we come into a relationship with Jesus. And then he adds this at the end of verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 40. He says, who, he who receives you receives me. So there will be some who will, not everybody's going to persecute or reject. There are going to be many who will receive you. And he says, whoever receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Not sure what that is. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. It's a promise he's making in effect that those who receive you will be received and you will be rewarded. And verse 42, and if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. And Jesus talks clearly here about rewards, and Jesus is the rewarder. 
And so as we follow him, we will experience his best in our lives. But these four things from chapter 10, we're going to still go into chapter 11. Don't fold your Bibles. I still got a good 15 minutes left. But, but what he's saying, at least in part here in chapter 10, expect a certain measure of persecution and rejection for being a Christian. Number two, he says, uh, don't be afraid or ashamed of me. Uh, be bold, but may your boldness be seasoned with grace and love. He says, number three, be prepared for some family conflict when some know Christ and some don't. And number four, take up your cross, which was a symbol of suffering and shame and death. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Die to self is what he's calling us to. Die daily. I think it's Luke's gospel that says, take up your cross daily and follow me. It is a daily dying to self, gang. We have to always be looking at our hearts and lives and realizing the flesh and realizing our sinful nature and dying to self that we might live more for Jesus every day. Well, look into chapter 11 with me. It says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, this is John the Baptist, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? This is a very tragic question that John the Baptist is asking, because of all people, John the Baptist should know that Jesus is Messiah. But he's questioning. He has some doubts here, which is a good reminder to us that even even John the Baptist, a prophet, has some serious questions about whether or not Jesus truly is everything that he thought he was supposed to be, And notice what really contributes to his question. His question is really rooted in the fact of his own unfortunate circumstance. The Bible says here that John the Baptist heard what Christ was doing while he, that is John the Baptist, was in prison. Now he's thrown in prison by uh, Herod Antipas, also known as Herod the Tetrarch, because Uh, John the Baptist was preaching the truth that confronted Herod's sinful life. Josephus, the first century historian, said that John the Baptist's prison was located at a place, the prison was called uh, Machairus, and it was located in the fortress that was built by Herod the Great near down by the Dead Sea. And then uh, historians believe that John the Baptist spent a year in this prison and he never got out. He would be beheaded in this prison. And we know he was beheaded because the other Gospels tell us that John the Baptist, uh, his head was severed from his shoulders as a gift to uh, Herod's, really what would be his stepdaughter. Now, let me just show you this convoluted story here so that we can get an idea of what's going on and what landed John the Baptist in prison. Herod the Great. We've got to start here with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod during the time of Jesus' birth. Remember, this was the maniac who decided that he was going to have all the baby boys aged two and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem killed, trying to eliminate the birth of the Messiah when the wise men came inquiring of where is the one born king of the Jews. So this is that Herod the Great. He was just bloodthirsty. He had uh, his favorite wife killed. He had most of his sons killed. And uh, one um, historian said uh, that it was better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his family members because you had a better chance of survival if you were a pig than you were if you were a family member. Well, Herod had several wives and he had several children, Herod the Great. And uh, he had uh, different sons by different wives. And just so you can see how convoluted this is, so the son by his second wife was named Aristobulus. The son by his third wife was Herod Philip. 
And the son by his fourth wife is the guy we're talking about here, which is Herod Antipas, also known as Herod the Tetrarch. This is the guy who ends up having John the Baptist thrown in prison and subsequently beheaded. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person. That includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know